Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team draft experts and talent scouts mock drafts and a few shock drafts too nfl total access the podcast is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer dan patrick and hosted by me jay harris that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be ranking the number 15 through number 11 players in NBA history. This is part three of our top 25 players ever series. So if you haven't watched the first two, I recommend that you do to get a sense of our list so far, who we've chosen and our rationale for that. Very quickly though, Logan, why don't you just brief us on the criteria that you're using to make all these calls? In this order, my most valuable thing was obviously team success. Did your team win when you were on the court? Did you make them great? Along with that, were you ever the best player on a championship team or a team that got to the NBA Finals? Next, I really heavily weigh and value two-way impact. Were you a great player on on both ends of the floor? Did you make your team great on one end of the floor or the other? And then peak... Uh, I weigh a little bit heavier over longevity. I just think if were you greater at your best, but obviously those can balance out if you were great for a very, very long time. So that's my criteria in that order. So some of you guys are hearing these spiels for the third time now, but we're just quickly catching up anybody who may be joining in for this episode. We have some real similarities. Most important thing, how much is your skill set contributing in terms of championship value? How much are you driving me towards winning games at the highest level? It's not about aesthetics. It's not about wow factor. It is about that. I really value playoff production accordingly because I think that is the most important and difficult stage to perform on. And I really value people who got over the hump as the guy won a championship, especially without overwhelmingly talented supporting casts. But we are not just counting rings here. Context totally matters. Your supporting cast, the role that you played, the level that you reached. I think that's a hugely important thing to reiterate here. Accolades can serve as an estimate for how good a player was, but they're far from the end-all, be-all. Voters make mistakes, they make decisions I disagree with, narratives and agendas are at play. In this episode, just like considering all of the stuff that I gathered, I 
don't think I'm going to be bringing up accolades much at all. And then like you, I value peak more than longevity. If you achieve something that another player just flat out couldn't, it's hard for me to put the player with the lower peak higher. However, if the peaks are similar, then longevity is absolutely an important factor. How long did you sustain that really high level for? So, very quickly before we jump into your number 15, Logan, why don't you just run down your list so far, 25 through 16? 25, I had John Havlicek, 24, Jason Kidd, 23, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 22, Kawhi Leonard, 21, Moses Malone, 20, Nikola Jokic, 19, Elgin Baylor, 18, Oscar Robertson, 17, I had Dirk Nowitzki, and 16, I had Julius Irving. All right, I had D. Wade at 25, Carl Malone at 24, Charles Barkley at 23, Chris Paul at 22, I had Moses at 21, like you, Giannis at 20, Dirk Nowitzki at 19, Dr. J at 18, the Big O at 17, and Nikola Jokic at 16. So, without further ado, Logan, I keep on thinking that these are going to get easier and they just keep getting harder. Today was an agonizing list to make, but who do you have at number 15 all time? At number 15, I have Kevin Garnett, and uh, I think he's a really underrated offensive player all time. Lifetime from 16 to three-point land, he's 45.4%. From 10 to 16 feet, he's 45%. And inside three feet lifetime, he's 68.5%. When you're talking about, uh, you know, modern stretch bigs, KG didn't, you know, make it popular. I think there were greater guys during his era like Dirk Nowitzki, but I think he's a really underrated guy. From that mid-range to elbow, super dangerous, super reliable. And he's an all-time defensive player, man. One of the greatest uh, of all time. But what I think is really impressive too, Carson, is that he led three top five offenses. One of them, you have Chauncey Billups and Terrell Brandon on his team. One time, he has Sam Cassell. One is basically by himself, though. I don't think we give KG enough credit for dragging those Timberwolves teams to being elite defenses, but also top five offenses. I think that's super impressive. At his peak is basically 12 seasons from 97 to 2008. He's given you 21, 12, and 5. At his top-notch peak from 99 to 05, he's 23, 13, and 5 on 49%. And I think we pigeonhole KG a little bit, Carson, because of those of that ring that he gets with the Boston Celtics, those elite teams with Rondo, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett, one truly one of the greatest teams of all time. And because he gets his ring with that team, uh, and that's his only ring. I can't put him higher, right? There are just guys that were number ones on better teams. But I don't want to undersell how bad those Timberwolves rosters were. Uh, he went to the Western Conference Finals with a team comprised of Sam Cassell, Latrell Sprewell, Trenton Hassel, Irvin Johnson, not Magic, my boy Irvin, <laughs> Wally Zerbiak, Fred Hoiberg, and one of the greatest busts of all time, Michael Olawa Candy. It's one of the greatest carry jobs of all time, and that 0-4 season is one of the greatest peaks by any player of all time. And I can't undersell how much better KG made teams offensively and defensively with him on the floor. From 2004 to 2012, they were an average of 12.3 points per 100 possessions better with Garnett on the floor. I mean, that mark is up there with some of the best players on this list. That's a mark better than Kobe Bryant. That's a mark better than Kevin Durant. But I do think there are gaps in offensive ability comparative to those guys like KD, like Kobe. That's why they're higher. I think they can just take offenses to higher heights despite how great KG was defensively. But I think he's criminally underrated offensively, 
and his peak is one of the highest of all times. But because he wasn't the guy, again, I don't want to hold that against KG too much. That's why he's not lower. He took those really shitty Timberwolves teams to great heights. He never got over the hump as the number one unequivocally best player. Um, and so that's what keeps him from climbing higher on my list. But I love Kevin Garnett. I love his intensity. And I really do think he's one of the most underrated complete players of all time. I would say that KG is pretty clearly the best player on that 2008 team, but I certainly see what you're saying, right? It was a team that was built with two other stars. He wasn't maybe the best offensive player there. He wasn't the finals MVP. Like, there's a lot of star power there. I do think that because of how incredibly dominant he was defensively while still being one of the best offensive players in the league, he was definitely the number one there. But... It doesn't compare to the gap that we see between some of the other guys here and their number twos. So I have KG in the exact same spot at number 15, and I really considered him up to 13 because of the totality of his impact on winning, which is really unique. And you laid out a lot of the strengths. I just want to dig into some more of the specifics that made KG so one of one in his brilliance as a player. I just made a whole TikTok on him very recently. It's a top five defensive peak ever to me and KG was absolutely ahead of his time in terms of his defensive skill set because he wasn't ahead of his time athlete right having that sort of size at seven foot with the seven five wingspan but being a uniquely fluid lateral mover he had all-time great hands the second best of any big man ever to me behind only Akeem Olajuwon which was such a weapon for him that length that activity with his hands made him so effective on the perimeter disrupting passing lanes and able to affect jump shooters even while sagging off a bit so that they couldn't weaponize their quickness advantage if he's out on a smaller guard and he was so good changing direction that he was really good at containing drives and then if you did get a little bit of a step on him well he was this great shot blocker with this phenomenal length as well he could make bigs uniquely uncomfortable out of the post because of his hands in activity there. He was a really high-level rim protector, even though that's not the first thing we think of because the early 2000s, there are so many monstrous shot blockers. KG may not have had the shot blocking numbers of a Ben Wallace or even a Tim Duncan, but he was a really good rim protector and a monstrous defensive rebounder, led the league in boards for four straight seasons. And then there's all the things that make for great defenders that don't show up on a stat sheet or aren't even a physical trait, but where KG excelled as much as anybody ever. Incredibly sound positionally, always knew where to be. Highly aware of opponent plays, like famously so, calling them out. And former players have complained about KG literally knowing what they were going to do. And just always tuned into the matchup. What's this guy's tendency? What's his strength? What's his weakness? How can I force him out of his comfort zone? Which is so important as a defender. And an unparalleled motor. Where he could just go and go and go for the entirety of a game. Which is also super important. Just your play-to-play -play effort defensively can make such a difference in your impact. And KG is like the best ever there. So I think he's the most complete defender in NBA history. I think there are better defenders because... There are just guys who, as rim protectors, were in another tier. If it's Bill Russell, if it's Akeem Olajuwon. But KG is, to me, one of the five best defenders ever. And then offensively, you mentioned a legitimately very good hub. Because his mid-range shooting empowered him to be a very high-level post hub. Like, if you look at the years that we have this data for, 
He's a 90th plus percentile efficiency post scorer on really high volume. His turnaround was incredible. His balance and body control there. He had some legit counters with up and unders and whatnot. A very skilled post scorer. But then also a pick and pop threat. A constant spot up threat from the mid-range which helped his team's spacing. Because of how good his handle was at 7 feet. He was a real face-up threat, weaponizing the threat of the jumper as well to get a step on people. He was good in transition because of his athleticism and his motor. And he's one of the best passing bigs ever, which is like the pivotal thing that makes him a good offensive engine. He was able to really zip passes out to shooters. He could make those little dump-offs to another big who he was playing alongside as a driver. I would say he's the second best passing big of this era. I'd probably give the edge to Chris Webber. They're different in the ways that they do it. Webber was more of like a overwhelmingly out of the post. He was just more like a big man in his passing brilliance, whereas KG could do some of that wing stuff coming downhill and whatnot. But you mentioned like from 04 to 07 in Minnesota, we don't have this data before 2004, he had an offensive on-off that was 98th percentile or better three of those four years. That's how much he's improving his team by offensively when he's on the floor versus off it with just abysmal supporting casts after 2004. You mentioned that Western Conference Finals team, dude. I mean, that was a way better team than he ever played with. Are you kidding me? Getting Sam Cassell and Latrell Sprewell at 33 and 34 years old for one season, that was a godsend to KG at that point in his career. Nobody of this stature has had less help for a decade plus than Kevin Garnett. I think that Akeem is the closest, but those were miserable teams that he was playing with before he got to Boston. With him, though, they won 56% of their games from 97 to 07. Without him, he didn't miss a lot of games, but they went 4-19, a 17% win rate. You mentioned his career on off, plus 11.3, is tied for the highest on record, and that dad only starts in 1997, with Steph Curry. So it's just a monstrous impact on winning. And carrying the T-Wolves to eight straight playoffs from 97 to 04 to turn out four 50-win seasons in five years is nuts. It's not a black mark on KG's resume that he only has the one Western Conference Finals run in all those years. It's a miracle that he was able to turn out the sort of teams that he did. And he was the best player on those teams in every way. He was their leading scorer, their leading facilitator, their most dominant defensive player on the perimeter and the interior. It's just remarkable. His teammates had three combined all-star appearances in all of those years. Tom Gugliotta made it in 97. Wally Zerbiak made it in 02. And then Sam Cassell made it in 04. Those are all very, very low-end, generous all-stars. So I will say... Overall, with the playoff stuff in Minnesota, it's really hard for me to hold him losing to the Spurs or the Kobe Shaq Lakers or the Nash Dirk Mavs against him, and those account for a majority of his losses. What I will say, though, is I do not believe that KG was a truly great offensive number one. And I mentioned David Robinson was my toughest cut from this list, probably, because his defensive impact was so monstrous, and he was a good offensive number one but ultimately in the playoff settings he couldn't maintain his efficiency his playmaking broke down a bit as the focal point of the defense's attention and great offensive players more often than not could outplay him on those stages 
I do think KG is in a different tier because of his playmaking, first and foremost, his ability to elevate others, and I think he had more scoring skill and variety. Robinson was a solid jump shooter. KG was up another level. But still, over the Minnesota years, his playoff averages are 22-13-5 on minus 0.6% true shooting versus league average, playing way more talented teams in very tough circumstances, but that is still a weakness and compared to everybody else who we're going to talk about today he is the weakest offensive player but he does have 17 seasons of star level impact like yeah he wasn't at his apex once he got to boston but still through at least 2012 right you are getting an elite player who is driving elite defenses he anchored five top five defenses in boston and two number one defenses and they won 70 percent of their games with him through 2012 so he was a guy who once he had the supporting talent around him very clearly had his value as an all-time great defensive player and a damn good offensive one but i still do believe that a truly great offensive number one is the most valuable thing in basketball. KG is so unbelievably great at so many things in the game that he is the highest I could have somebody with his offensive limitations, if you could even call it that. It's really just not being like all-time great. But his impact on winning is so significant, he has to be in the top 15. Yeah, and it's sad too, Carson, because some of those playoff numbers that you mentioned, the 6% below true shooting uh, compared well, to the average. Point six, point six, big six, difference. Excuse me. Um, even that is a, you know, it's a byproduct of not having someone else to rely on too. But I think, you know, the great offensive players are always going to overcome that, right? They are always going to produce regardless of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if we would appreciate KG more if he had another legitimate number two that could have helped him on the playoff stage, he never had that luxury until he got to Boston. You know, I mean, the talent is, that's what makes KG such a uniquely hard player to rank because we never saw that when he was Mm -hmm. truly in his prime. But when he did, he does get the job done. I also do think it's worth noting that there's no doubt in my mind KG would be an even more efficient offensive player today. Like maybe he wouldn't be Mm -hmm. as high volume a guy out of the post where I actually think it's underrated how great he was there. But the just lethal nature of the pick and pop game and how good of a three-point shooter he would be had that been prioritized if he had a higher caliber playmaking point guard throughout his career who could consistently set him up he did have to create so much of his offense for himself but there wasn't a lot of really easy stuff with KG right he wasn't the sort of overwhelming athlete who could just generate those at rim opportunities effortlessly so because of his reliance on his skill and some of that tough shot making, he couldn't reach those highest levels of offensive efficiency as a number one. But I think KG really has to be here. And I know that there's that debate between him and Dirk. I just think the totality of his impact on winning is on another level. I think the floor raising that he did for all those years is even more impressive than the ceiling raising that Dirk did playing with just clearly superior talent. And although I do value Dirk's scoring advantage, I don't think it outweighs KG's massive defensive advantage, significant playmaking advantage, and the fact that KG was still a number one on good offenses with bad personnel. Where does KG rank among the game's best shit talkers ever for you? Well, 
I haven't been on the court, but I would say he's got to be top two, probably number one, right? Like GP, I feel like is the only dude who can challenge him. Really? You don't have Larry Bird up there? Larry, I don't think quite had that sort of aggression. There's definitely something cool about just like casually saying the stuff that Larry did, but I prefer the deranged insanity of a KG (laughs) saying, what was it? Some terrible about Tim Duncan's mother who was no longer with us, God rest her soul. You need to have a level of ruthlessness that KG did to be in that GOAT conversation for me. But let's move on to your number 14. Who do you NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Man, this one was tough. At number 14, I have Kevin Durant. And flat out, he's one of the greatest scorers of all time. For 14 seasons, KD has scored 25 points per game. These are lifetime stats, too. A 45.1% shooter from 16 to 3-point land. 47.6% from 10 to 16 feet. Nearly 74% inside three feet, like we have rarely seen as an efficient three-level three, uh, three level scorer as KD. He is one of the most efficient of all time. And I think it's amazing to me that he has gotten better with age. These are stats from over the last six seasons. He's over 50% from 3 to 10 feet, 10 to 16 feet, and 16 to three-point land. And he's nearly 78% inside three feet. If there is, is something as aging like fine wine... Kevin Durant has aged like it. Um, And I think uh, the argument, I think you can make a legitimate argument for KG over KD. Like you, I played with KG higher. uh, At his peak, only 7.7 points per 100 possessions better uh, with KD on the floor 
but I prefer his longevity to KG's, and I prefer his just overwhelming dominant scoring skill set. I mean, KD is one of the best buckets of all time, and you can't understate the value in that. But the thing that is always going to weigh on Kevin Durant's shoulders, Carson, is the fact that he never got a ring as the guy. I mean, it clearly weighs on Kevin Durant in the social media sphere, too, the way people talk about him. I mean, his biggest playoff moments, you know, without the Warriors, lost in the Western Conference Finals, blowing a 3-1 lead to the Dubs, losing in the Eastern Conference Finals, to the Bucks, I I don't understate how great Kevin Durant was with those Warriors teams, but they're two of the weakest championships of all time, right? Like, Kevin Durant was never the guy on a championship-winning team. When you look at his scoring skill set, I think it's one of the greatest of all times. Now, not as a complete offensive engine. I think there's a distinction to be made there because of the playmaking value. I think the greatest offensive engines ever, I think you mentioned some of them last episode, Carson, MJ, LeBron, Steph Curry, Nikola Jokic. I think they're like in a tier of their own and how they elevate teams. But Kevin Durant is a flat-out bucket getter, is one of the greatest of all time. But he's not one of the best two-way guys in NBA history. He's gotten better defensively over time. And he's not an overwhelmingly dominant offensive engine because he didn't become a great playmaker until later in his career. And he never got a title as the guy. Kobe did. Steph did. Everybody else above him did. You know, Kevin Durant never did that, and that's what keeps him from climbing higher on my list. And you can talk about the two rings. Yes, he was the best player, but those are super teams, and they're two of the softest rings ever. I'm sorry. They're two of the weakest because of how loaded those teams were. You had four all-stars, you know, and I know that's a tired, downtrodden argument that people are tired of hearing. That's Kevin Durant's legacy. You know, unless he gets a ring with the Suns, and I mean, this is a loaded group, too, with Devin Booker, with Bradley Beal. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's That's Kevin Durant's legacy, and that's what limits him from climbing into the top 10. I think he's got one of the greatest offensive scoring skill sets ever, but that's his legacy. KD is tough to rank. I have him one spot higher than you at 13. To me, it comes down to the fact that he is a top two scorer ever. And to me, unquestionably, the greatest three-level scorer ever. Now, I will say, there's a nuanced difference to be made between the best scorer ever or top two scorer ever. And Steph Curry, I would argue, is a more valuable scorer because of his constant off-ball activity, the unrivaled spacing advantage that he brings to an offense at all times. But when it comes down to just get me a bucket, that level of shot making and three level scoring and production and efficiency, I think KD is really only in a tier with Michael Jordan, probably. You mentioned some of the total numbers. His career is over 27 a game on plus 7.2% true shooting versus league average. His playoff career, 29.4 points per game on plus 5.1% true shooting. We have never seen a combination of the sort of handle and fluid athleticism at, let's be honest, seven foot with just one of the best pure shots we've ever seen, completely unaffectable in any situation. And you think about the iconic shots of his career, the daggers against Cleveland. That is a dude who can just rise up, nobody can do a damn thing about it, and he's going to shoot 40% from three, or he's going to shoot above 50% from mid-range. That's a one-of-one skill set in NBA history. Nobody has ever been able to do it at that level like Kevin Durant. And that is why, even now, as he struggles to pressure the rim, he is having these 
historically efficient near 30 point per game scoring seasons because nobody has ever or will ever be able to take that away. And it's driven one of the longest top five player peaks that we have ever seen. And I also do think it's worth noting that young Kevin Durant in OKC was a much better rim pressurer, was a guy who ate up free throws, just a superior athlete. But he is aged like fine wine even without that. Here's what's tough about the Warriors year. Yes, of course, those teams were legitimately unfair in how stacked they were. At the same time, I think there's a duality to it. Because no, KD doesn't deserve the credit that a lot of these other guys do, that an Akeem Olajuwon does in 94-95 for raising supporting cast that would not be in these conversations without him whatsoever. At the same time, I think us talking about, oh, those rings were so easy, can diminish how absurdly high Kevin Durant's peak was. Like, the 2017 Finals, I remember thinking this is as invincible of a score as I have ever seen and there will ever be. He was 35 a night on 70% true shooting. Then the next year comes out and puts on a playmaking show, 7.5 assists per game, 29 a night on better than 65% true shooting. His playoff peak from the totality of 2017 to 2021 30.6 points per game on 63.9% true shooting. 2019, outside of his injuries, it was as unstoppable of a scoring run as we have seen. When you think about what he did to the Clippers, just flambayed them. Then, 2021 comes back with the Nets. Kyrie is injured and misses multiple games in the Milwaukee series, including Game 7. James Harden comes back as a complete shell of himself in Game 7 and also misses multiple games in that series. So it's basically KD and Joe Harris and the boys. And he brings them to the absolute brink there with a level of scoring brilliance up at 34 points per game and incredible playmaking, consistently getting downhill and just dissecting in that series that is some of the best basketball he's ever played. It doesn't result in a ring because of circumstances. I also think when you're looking at that 2017 sort of peak, he was so great defensively that year, could easily have been all defense because of his impact as a secondary rim protector. I thought this regular season was another great defensive year for him. Again, as a secondary rim protector above all else. So I do view him throughout his career as a mostly plus defender, especially once he got to Golden State and sort of figured out that role more and became less of a three and more of a four with some very high peaks. Doesn't compare to the all-time greats, of course, which some of the players on this list are in terms of two-way value, but legitimately quite good. And as you mentioned, a strong playmaker who has gotten better and better there as time goes on. And he has done a whole lot of winning and has been relevant in these contending conversations for 15 years, effectively. Tough to overstate how rare that is. His career winning percentage equates to a 52-win pace. That's what he's sustained for 15 years. Career on off, plus 5.7. That is not like KG, Duncan, LeBron, Jokic, Steph level. There are definitely guys from this generation who are better, but it's still quite good. He has had great supporting cast. There's no denying that, but he has largely been the driving force with the exception of the Warriors years when even then, I don't know that you could tell me who was better. I mean, they were two of the three best players on the planet. 
I think that it comes down to Steph was more valuable because of his gravity and what he did to increase shot quality for everybody in that offense at all times. But Katie was the dude who you turned to, who stepped up, who asserted himself as the leading scorer and did so with historically great efficiency. So I can't undervalue that sort of peak and longevity combined. And I do think you look throughout his career and definitely unfortunate circumstances could potentially keep him from going even higher here. 2011, him and Russ in that core reach a high peak very early, but they're young. The Mavs beat them. 2012, I think that Heat team was better. Then, of course, you lose Harden. 2013, Russ is hurt. KD's number two scorer is old Kevin Martin. 2014, they fall to a great Spurs team that ended up mowing through the Heat. 2015, KD is hurt. 2016, they lose in seven to the 73-win Warriors. They should have won that series, but if they had, it would have been beating one of the best teams we've ever seen. 2019, he gets hurt when that would have almost certainly been a third straight Warriors title. 2021, as we mentioned, Kyrie and Harden are hurt. So I believe it was our buddy Gabe Swartz who said that this feels like a 10th or 15th percentile version of KD's career if you were to run the simulation a hundred times. I do think, though, to have him any higher than 13 would be overvaluing pure skill, especially one-on-one -on -one scoring ability, versus results. I don't think that you can get away with not being a clear, undeniable number one driving a title team. You can't go higher than 13 without having that clear mark on your resume. There's just a gap to me between 12 and 13 here. So, because of the all-time scoring because of the plus defense and playmaking, although not elite with this incredible longevity, he has to be this high. There's just so few people who have been at this level for this long and reached the peak and did so in title runs, even if they weren't your traditional title runs because those teams were so loaded. You would take him over a score compared to Kobe? I believe... That in a vacuum of one-on-one -on -one scoring, KD is better. But I think that Kobe is a more valuable offensive engine because I think that Kobe was much more active off-ball. I think Kobe was actually a better playmaker, so there's little things that probably enhance his value there versus KD, but just the unbelievable efficiency and ease with which KD can score is tough. And Kobe has more versatility because of the off-ball stuff, because of how spectacular he was out of the post, his difficult shot making, his footwork and balance down there, his rim pressuring as a younger player. But it's tough to deny this level of production and efficiency that KD has generated for this long. For this long is right, too. I mean, like you said, top five player on the planet for 15-plus seasons. And, I mean, just a year ago, uh, we did uh, – I referenced this show that we shot uh, on last episode. We drafted our all-time NBA teams, and I struggled to debate who I wanted to pick. I had the turnaround pick. With my third pick, I took Kareem. With my fourth pick, I took KD because KD is that skilled, is that dominant of a scorer, and is still probably one of the handful of guys that you would take – um, today. His longevity is, I think, yeah. what would be the argument to get him higher on this list. But again, everybody else climbed the mountain. That's something that KD didn't do by himself. And I'm going to 
hold that against him. But I think you're right, man. I'm glad you laid out the circumstances. I think if we run that basketball sim a <laughs> hundred mm-hmm. times, I think KD's more successful in basically every realm. It is pretty unfortunate. It's like people who say that Paul George is the GOAT, right? And I think <laughs> some people look at that and they're like, what the hell is this 16-year-old talking about? That's somebody who is looking purely at mostly one-on-one basketball skill, right? That combination of ball handling, that level of shot making combined with athleticism at that size, it's pretty insane. It's pretty unique throughout NBA history. But there's more that goes into the totality of impacting winning, which is why I could see somebody arguing like a KG over a KD. But I don't know, man. That level of scoring that we saw from him 2017 through 2021, doing it in the playoffs, it's to me in like the tier one of scoring peaks ever. And that's really, really valuable. But I was going to say, I mean, you had me intrigued. You uh, said that KD is at your number 13 spot. Who did you leapfrog over? So at number 14, I have Jerry West, which I think these two have something interesting in common, which is that they belong in this tier as players, but they were never the clear far and away number one on a title team. Both of them had these 1A, 1B situations, KD with Steph and Jerry West with Wilt. I think Jerry West is one of the most phenomenal all-around players that we have ever seen. His regular season career averages are 27-6-7 on plus 5.9% true shooting versus league average. You watch him play. He is so quick and so efficient and purposeful in every movement. Like, his change in direction for that time is elite. He is a deceptive mover, an excellent ball handler, such a skilled finisher in the lane. And just very difficult to contain and to keep out of that painted area. And Jerry and Oscar both ate up free throw attempts in the 60s, like consistently in double digits, which is so rare historically for guards. And then he pairs that with lethal mid-range shooting and had a beautiful array of shots there. Turnarounds, the ability to just rise up and pull up situations to pump fake and then still hit a shot against a contest. And he was a really strong playmaker who was very good at weaponizing the pressure that he applied against those defenses. Then you have the other side of the ball where Jerry West is an elite all-time defender to me. Crazy length for his size, 6'9 wingspan and a very good vertical athlete gave him legitimate value as a secondary rim protector, which I think... When we're talking about the best shot blocking guards ever, there's pretty much just two names who come up and it's Michael Jordan and it's Dwayne Wade. Jerry West to me would firmly be in that top three if we had those numbers. 1974 is the first season that they actually did start tracking steals and blocks officially. Jerry was 35 years old. It was his last season. He still averaged 0.7 blocks per game. So he had real value there, which is pretty unique for a guard. And then outstanding hands and anticipation. He was a huge disruptor in passing lanes, frequently capable of stripping ball handlers on drives. He was just tough to score on with his level of engagement and great physical tools and instincts and hands. He also averaged 2.6 steals per game in that one season that we have, and I guarantee his numbers in that were higher at his peak. So he's one of the great defensive playmakers ever and one of the great defensive guards ever, period. He is also one of the great playoff performers, even beyond what he did in the regular season of all time. 29.1 points per game in his playoff career on plus 5.5% true shooting versus league average. He led the playoffs in scoring four times, 
per game and led in assists per game three times and was even better in the finals. 30.5 points per game on plus 4.7% true shooting. Keep in mind that is mostly facing the greatest defense ever, the 1960 Celtics, who are a head above the rest of the league in terms of how much they dominated the league. Jerry's volume went up and his efficiency really didn't take a hit. And this is why ring culture can be so brutal. He was a possession away from a title. A possession. We're talking two to three points in a game seven. Four times. Three of those coming against the 60s Celtics. In game sevens, he averaged 31 points per game on plus 5.7% true shooting. In elimination games overall, 29, 6, and 7 on plus 7.1% true shooting. There's just no argument that, oh, well, Jerry didn't step up to the big moment. You think about 1969, he's the finals MVP, the only player ever to earn that honor on the losing team. He was sensational. And I also don't think you can hold the lack of titles against him because of how insane those Celtics teams were. And once Wilt is in the picture, they have a talent advantage finally. But again, if you look at the home stretch of 69, well, West was out of this world in that series. Elgin wasn't great. Wilt very famously, of course, gets benched in the final minutes of that game seven. Then you have 1970, where Wilt is coming off of his knee injury, major knee injury from earlier that season. So he isn't able to quite reach his apex. I just think like overwhelmingly, Jerry was amazing. Ironically, one of his weaker playoff runs was when they won the title in 72, and he just couldn't make a shot for most of that run. But overall, I can't deny that level of playoff production for over a decade. I think it is historically special. And I think it's worth emphasizing that, yes, he and Elgin were both all-time great players who played together for this long and didn't get a ring together. I mean, it ends up coming after Elgin retires. But the gap is Jerry was the better defender. He was the better playmaker. He was the higher volume playoff scorer, and he was way more efficient. So just in terms of the overall impact on winning, like, yes, their raw scoring numbers may be comparable. They're really not even after 1964 when Elgin gets hurt. Jerry is just far and away the best player uh, in every way. But it's like 1965, Elgin gets hurt. What does Jerry do? He averages 40 points per game. They still go to the finals. The next year, 66. Uh, Jerry averages 34 points per game on 52% true shooting. So insane for a guard in that era and takes them to the finals. 67, Jerry gets hurt. What does Elgin do? They get swept in the first round. Like, it was a very clear Jerry was the guy best player after Elgin's injury in 1964. Jerry comes back 68, 31 points per game on 53% shooting in that run, and they lose one game in the first two rounds. So, the only reason he's not higher for me, given the totality of that all-around scoring, playmaking, defensive brilliance for that long on the playoff stage, is that he didn't climb the mountain as the unassailable guy. And his longevity is really damn good, but most of those guys above him have even better longevity. Kevin Durant among them. And I also think he's not a like top 10 offensive engine of all time. I would say even Oscar was a purely better offensive player in this era, a bit more efficient as a scorer, a better playmaker. But the totality of Jerry's impact on winning is really all-time stuff. And I imagine you probably have him at 13. I'll go ahead and spoil it. I have Jerry at 11, and I didn't hold... Whoa! Uh, 
I didn't hold that against him, uh, the fact that he didn't climb the mountain. I know it was a deal-breaker for some guys, but for a guy to get this close so many times, nine finals appearances, eight of them losses, six of them, as you mentioned, come to those great Celtics teams, four of them come in Game 7, and uh, you said four Game 7s were decided by less than three points. I believe it was three Game 7s decided by less than three 62, 66, and 69. Uh, they lose in another game seven to the Knicks that was decided by 14 points. But, I mean, he's an all-time finals performer. 31 30-point finals games. He has 11 straight 25-point-per-game seasons. You mentioned how effective he is in the playoffs. Uh, he's 5.9% higher than league average true shooting over his career. He's an all-star every year of his career 14 times. He's got elite longevity. He consistently got his teams to the finals and they just went up against superior competition. I didn't hold the fact that he didn't ever get a ring as the definitive guy because he got close so many times. And I took him I took him above other guys because of his two-way value. He's five times all defense. You mentioned how great he is as a defensive playmaker. He just has a total impact on winning that I think other guys don't. This might sound crazy. I mean, I have him above Steph Carson. I have him above KD. I have him above Kobe. I mean, I just think that his totality on his total impact on winning is super high. His peak is crazy. His longevity is crazy. And he got so close so many times. I'm not going to hold the fact that he didn't ever get a ring as the guy because he was he was there every damn year, man. Uh, Jerry's super underrated, and I, I truly did. I had trouble ranking Jerry. I consider Jerry top 10. I considered him all the way down to 13, but I'm going to reward his longevity. I'm going to reward his two-way impact, and I'm going to reward how damn close he got every single season. Uh, I think Jerry's super underrated and super well-rounded. I get it, but at the same time, I feel like there is a level of sheer force and dominance, and hey, I am the best player in the world, and that is undeniable that the top 12 guys basically all reached and like willed their team to titles and of course i value all of jerry's finals appearances and how close they got at the same time it was an eight team league for a majority of those years so just getting to the finals is an easier feat so that's kind of a bare minimum benchmark for me for the top 12 and that's why i do think that there is a gap is if in all your years you weren't able to once as the clear guy drive that title, I can't quite give you that level of respect. I love Jerry, but I think you are probably uniquely high on him having him at number 11. I, I see I see what you're getting at. I mean, in terms of in terms of sheer will, yeah, I mean, other guys got their teams over the humps, but I mean, I don't know, man. It's it's so impressive to me how how consistently successful he was on the biggest stages. I mean, I think the rings argument is one of the dumbest that you could put out there against Jerry West. There's a reason that they called him Mr. Clutch. I mean, he's one of the great big stage playoff and finals performers of all times. To get there that many times, to consistently ball out on that biggest stage, I, I really do value that. And I know it's a lot easier to get there in that old era, but there's just a complete... Uh, winning impact, like his two-way value, I, I took over Steph. I took over KD. Um, it was a hard debate, like I said. I considered basically everybody in the top 13 up to top 10, but I'm going to put some respect on Jerry's name, man. I, I think he's I think he's a little underrated at this point. 
KD, I understand. What I would say for Steph is that you're looking at such a historic level of offensive greatness. Two-way advantages be damned, dude. Like, Steph might be the greatest offensive engine that we've ever seen. And that's why he is so far and away the number one on not just two champions, but four finals teams. He's made the finals four times without Kevin Durant. With Akeem, you are looking at a level of, okay, well, we're going to be a top five defense pretty much no matter what, and I can be one of the greatest scorers the game has ever seen, two of the most remarkable carry jobs to a title ever. That's just a different level of peak to me. So who do you have at number 12, Logan? Oh, I got to go with my 13 first, uh, and that's Steph Curry. Oh, excuse me. I Um. jumped the gun. (laughs) Ooh, I, I consider Steph is the hardest guy to rank on this list for me. I considered Steph Curry all the way up to number number eight or number nine above guys like Wilt or uh, Bill Russell because of how uniquely dominant he is as an offensive engine and an offensive centerpiece. I think he is in the pantheon of the greatest offensive engines, like I mentioned earlier. MJ, LeBron, Jokic, Curry. He's the greatest shooter of all time, and that gravity really matters. You talk about KD and Clay Carson. I mean, he is just generating such great shot quality for all of those guys with the ball in his hands, out of the pick and roll, um, in isolation, but also as an off-ball mover, using screens and stuff, running around all over the court. And I think that's an important distinction you make too, Carson. He gets those rings with KD, but he's the best player on multiple championship teams that aren't super teams. And I think the 2022 title cemented him in these conversations from the 13th to a top nine player ever. Granted, I think it's important that we mention that is built around a great team defense with Draymond, with Andrew Wiggins, with Kevin Looney. I think we need to mention that, but I mean, Curry is creating and generating all of those shots for them in that playoff run. He's at 28 points per game, and there's just nobody that could have done what Steph did in that playoff run to get them there. It's just so easy to build a great team offense around Steph. He's a two-time league leader in true shooting percentage. He's 7.6% higher than league average true shooting on his career on nearly 18 shots a game. From 2011 to 2023, excluding 2020, the season that he missed, he's 13.4 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. And some of you may say, too, oh, well, KD's there for some of that uh, stretch. Without KD, his teams are 12.5 points per 100 possessions better with Steph on the floor. He's great with or without Kevin Durant. Steph's just one of the most efficient and one of the most dominant offensive players of all time. But like I mentioned, the distinction that I made and why I put Steph at 13 and not above Kobe, not above Jerry, not above guys like Hakeem, is that two-way value. I really do value guys who are great on both ends of the floor and... That's what was tough, man, is is Steph's offensive brilliance, does it outweigh his lack of being a great all-time defender? Yes. I ultimately landed on the yes, fence it does. that, no, I didn't. So I took Kobe, I took Jerry, I took Akeem above Steph. I know it burnt me in the in the current player rankings. I think Steph's in a tier above, but I want guys that are both are great on both ends of the floor. And for me, that's why I put Steph at 13 and not higher. I think the only feasible argument for Steph down in the 13 range is longevity, that he doesn't reach this level of peak until 2015. But since he did, he has had eight healthy seasons. Six times the Warriors have been in the finals. Four times they have been the champions. And the two years that that hasn't been the case, well, he just had a, like, 
monumentally impressive playoff run. Some of the highest offensive levels that he's ever reached in that King series with the blend of unbelievable pull-up shooting and how he attacked the rim in that game seven. An incredibly high level of playmaking across that and the Lakers series. Like he is every bit as good as he has ever been. And of course you have the 2021 season, which was the most pathetic supporting cast ever that he dragged to still somehow play above average offense and win. I feel like it was close to 60% of their games when he was on the floor and they were what one and seven without him. Like that just matters more to me. Peak matters more than longevity. Steph's peak is clearly one of the 10 highest that we have ever seen. He is the most efficient scorer versus league average when we are talking about this top 15 range. He has had the most pronounced impact on winning of the guys since 1997 for whom we have this data in terms of on-off plus 11.3 there. And also just how consistently great his teams have been with him on the floor, outscoring the opposition by 8.3 points per 100 possession is, I believe, the best mark of anybody there as well. And he is unquestionably driving that. And he is driving historically great offenses so consistently. Like even 2022, yes, they have a really good defensive foundation. In the regular season, they are a better team defense than team offense. Part of that is Steph misses time. But come playoffs, they were a better offense than they were defense because Steph just reached historic levels as a scorer and playmaker and there has never been anybody more valuable away from the ball at all times with his level of activity and how unbelievable of a weapon his shooting is so it comes down to me peak is higher and he has climbed the mountain four times and gotten his team there six times and you can argue if he's the best player for two of them but I mean, the other four, man, that alone puts you in a rare, rare class. I just value that too much to have him this low. I think he's so clearly outweighing Jerry West's two-way advantage with him being that undeniable tier one offensive player that he is. Let me ask you two follow-ups on Steph. If Jerry, I know we can't change this, if he gets two of those rings... If he gets one of those rings, does it make a difference at all to you and how we view him? I mean, what are we doing here? Are we dipping into the hypothetical zone? Why do I have to answer that? I'm just asking. I, they're decided. Then let me ask you this. Is Steph the weakest defender in our top 25? The weakest defender in our top 25? Uh, let me think about everybody who we've named. And for what it's worth... I mean, I think it's I think it's Jokic. I think it's Dirk. Yeah, he's in the bottom tier, certainly, but I think he's a replacement-level defender. And no, one more ring for Jerry West would not change this picture to me. I don't know. For Jerry, I really value him getting there every year, too. Like I said. Uh... Steph's got four, and he has been unbelievable every time. Carson's doing the Clay Thompson right now, bro. I'm not doing the Clay Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what i think about I just when guys think... go to the go to the four i don't act like this wasn't close for me dude i mean i think steph is arguably the greatest offensive engine of the 21st century but my criteria is two-way and i'm sticking to that and i think steph is the worst defender on this list but two-way can't be a criteria in a vacuum you have Jokic above Giannis. i mean the two-way yeah, advantage and it's that Giannis possesses over Jokic is greater than the two-way advantage Jerry West possesses over Steph Curry. 
do you think the Warriors get four championship rings without Draymond Green? We cannot do that, bro. Oh my God. Are we going to ask about Michael Jordan's rings? Are we going to ask about LeBron James's rings? That applies to every champion in NBA history. It doesn't work that way. I think it's important to mention. But Draymond Green is not a historically great number two, Logan. 2022 Draymond Green? Like, maybe a top 25 player in the NBA? Maybe? Doesn't work that way. Does Jerry West win a ring without Wilt Chamberlain, who was the best player on that team? No, he doesn't. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know what sort of theoreticals you're trying to get into here, man. And I will just reiterate, I am the ultimate appreciator of 60s basketball, and I respect all those finals trips so much, but six finals appearances point blank in the 2015 to 2023 range are more valuable than eight of them in the 1960s to early 1970s. It's just harder to get there because there's so many more teams and the talent is less concentrated. But anyways. Nine of them. Yeah. Excuse me. Eight, which he lost. <laughs> I love Jerry, man. I just think Steph to me is on a different level all time. But if it got heated there, man, I mean, the intensity is only about to pick up. Who do you have at number 12? I don't think you're going to like this one. Uh, I already spoiled it a little earlier. Uh, I got Kobe Bryant at 12 and Kobe was super hard to rank, especially because I think the offensive conversation between him and Steph, I don't think it's close. Like, I think Steph is in a different tier of offensive engines and creator of easy offense uh, compared, like, in efficiency, in terms of shots for his teammates, in terms of overall gravity. I don't think it's close between the two. But again, when I looked at two-way value, I took Kobe. Um, Kobe's in... 12-time all-defense selection. His peak is super long, 14 seasons. 12 seasons over 25 points per game. 28-6-5 on 46-34 splits with uh, over one and a half steals per game. His on-off metrics aren't as great as some of the other guys. They're not as great as KG. They're not as great as Steph. They're slightly better, or actually slightly worse, excuse me, than KD. He's at 6.9 points per 100 possessions better over his peak. But he's one of the great playoff performers of all time, and I think a top five scorer of all time for 14 seasons, minimum 12 games played 22 players have averaged 30 points per game or more in a playoff run. Kobe did it four times. Only three players have done it more. That's Jerry West. That's LeBron James. And that's Michael Jordan. When you were looking at the greatest pure scorers in basketball history, Kobe has to be mentioned. And he is the best player on two championship teams. Granted, I think those supporting casts are great too. Pau Gasol, Ron Artest, Andrew Bynum. Those are legit ballers alongside Kobe, but he is the best player on those two teams. He's also a second best player on uh, multiple teams with Shaq too, where he's averaging 25 points per game in the playoffs. Ultimately, I went with him over Steph because of two-way value, because I think that Kobe is a plus defender. I went with him over KD because he was the best player on a championship team multiple times. KD, that's a debate, that's a toss-up, and I think he was a better defender than KD. Kobe's routinely drawing the best offensive player in playoff matchups. And, yeah, Kobe's longevity is insane, man. And I, I don't want to undersell, too. I mean, after Shaq leaves, he's dragging some abysmal, abysmal units to playoff contention. Granted, they lose. I mean, he's averaging 30 points a night with Smush Parker, with, I mean, shout-out Amir and shout-out our Trivia Time episode. You guys can go look at those rosters. They stink. They're horrible. And Kobe's dragging them to not only relevancy, but to being 
pretty good in playoff contenders when they had no business being there without Kobe. So you have some lost years like KG where they can't be legitimate contenders because of the supporting cast. I get the inefficiency. And Carson, I got a feeling that you're going to go on a little bit of a spiel about how his defense is a little overrated. I really do value his two-way impact. That's why I took him over Steph. That's why I took him over KD. And like I said, Steph, Kobe, Jerry, I considered them all of them up to the top eight. Ultimately, I couldn't do it. And so Kobe slots in at my number 12 spot. I have Kobe at number 12 as well. I think that this is the absolute lowest that you can put him. And I do think that there is a gap between him and the KDs and the Jerry Wests of the world to me. And KG, I think that there are people out there who will argue, well, the totality of KG's winning skill set would surpass what Kobe had if Kobe wasn't in so much more obviously privileged situations than KG throughout his prime. And Kobe was in much more privileged situations than a lot of people throughout NBA history. But to me, again, the archetype of that offensive number one who can put that sort of imprint on the game directly and elevate a team offense like Kobe was capable of is the most valuable thing. And uh, I do think that that drove winning in a very, very meaningful way where he is the undisputed number one on two champions. So I want to start with the positives about Kobe because I think that most people will be surprised and some people will be really upset that we have him this low. And all I would say is the top 12 is just insane. And I have so much appreciation for all these guys. There's going to be no slander here, all right? I even felt bad making a joke about Jerry West losing in eight finals because I love the guy. But Logan got me a little hot there with that take for a second. So, obviously, Kobe is one of the most skilled, creative, and complete scorers ever. He is the best difficult shot maker that we have ever seen. You are looking at a level of phenomenal post footwork and the variety of counters that he had there. A really unique ability to maintain his balance and body control at all times so he can make these shots from unbelievable angles and with strange alignment and with people smothering him he could pump fake into a shot and still nail it with no airspace he could spin over either shoulder he could step through and then shoot from this crazy angle to take advantage of the window that he created it's just a level of artistry as a scorer that nobody in basketball history has ever matched. And I do think that's why, along with him being a Lakers legend, of course, there are so many people who feel so adamantly about Kobe as a top five player, or maybe as their greatest player of all time. We collectively have a tremendous appreciation for one-on-one scoring skill sets. And I think this applies to pro basketball players as well. They look at the things that Kobe could do to get a shot in a one-on-one situation and say, I couldn't do that. That's unbelievable. That's unfathomable. And so that elevates him for people. Of course, there is more than that when it comes to impacting basketball and driving winning. And I do think that there are some people who perform better in those categories than Kobe when we're talking about these all-time upper tiers. He was, though, also skilled attacking the rim, especially in his younger years when he was one of the best athletes in the league. But he was always a slippery mover. He was always creative. He was always very... Uh, balanced and in control in traffic and he was good at getting defenders off balance with his variety of pump fakes and whatnot and he was a great off-ball scorer a highly active mover away from the ball who as a catch and shooter would just need those slight windows and could do it off movement with a contest obviously that's when he made a living off of and a smart and instinctual cutter so all of that makes him one of the most productive scorers we have ever seen. In a 20-year career, Kobe Bryant averaged 25 points per game, 
on plus 1.9% true shooting versus league average. From 2001 to 2013, what I would consider his real prime, which is a long prime, by the way, 28.1 points per game on plus 2.5% true shooting versus league average. He was also a good, not great playmaker, but he frequently demanded significant defensive attention, right? He would draw a lot of doubles. He really did demand a lot of defensive attention away from the ball, certainly not at like Steph levels, and the spacing value isn't the same because he's doing it inside the arc largely versus outside. But still, he was the constant focal point of defensive attention in the post-Shaq years, and he was aware of how to weaponize that. He dissect doubles well. He was also good at the drop-off pass as a driver, but he didn't have an elite playmaking impact. He didn't have that sort of superb next level vision to do stuff that like only the great playmakers in the league are capable of create high value shots where there might not be one there to the average, even good playmaker. And he did have a tendency to take too many tough shots and he didn't quite create as many of those effortless playmaking opportunities as some of the league's great because he didn't just collapse the rim, right? If you look at some of the assists that a John Morant today will get, it's because everybody's got to collapse on him and then boom, obviously somebody's open. Kobe didn't quite have that level of rim pressure throughout a majority of his career. But that sort of all-around scoring value, the defensive attention he demanded with pretty good playmaking makes him a great offensive engine. Alongside Shaq, he was pivotal to five straight top six offenses. Now, it's worth noting Shaq was churning out good offenses kind of no matter what at this point. He's one of the best offensive players we've ever seen. And they had a top five offense when Kobe was on the bench. They had a top 10 offense Shaq's first year there. They also just had good personnel when Shaq first showed up. So it is worth noting that Shaq is the most important player to those offenses being so good, clearly. But then 2005 to 2007, you mentioned he floated the Lakers as a top eight offense each year. That is incredible value and is improving them dramatically in terms of efficiency when he is on the court versus off it. So with those supporting casts, that's one of the things that affirms Kobe as an all-time offensive engine. Not tier one, but like special stuff. And then 2008, 2009, he drove top three offenses, obviously with a much better supporting cast by that point. And then after that, drove another three uh, top 10 offenses. So... Offensively, great value. We will get into some of the areas. I think he doesn't quite hold up against the all-time greats in this tier. And then we get to his defense. I believe Kobe was a good defender. I believe he was an overrated defender. I believe 12 all-defense selections is an egregious overestimation of his defensive value. This happens with star players in terms of all-defense it can very much become a reputation-based award, and it's especially liable to happen to a star player like Kobe in such a big market playing for such great teams. And I think he had great moments, but he really picked his spots defensively, ultimately. I also think another reason that he gets a bit overrated is he was a really good one-on-one -on -one defender, right? He had very good feet. He had a 6'11 wingspan, so he had good length there, could affect ball handlers and jump shooters, and he took those one-on-one -on -one matchups personally. It was a point of pride, and that's where you get a lot of those, like, sick Kobe clamps, whatever player, if it's Kyrie. There's so many of those that go around, those, like, viral clips, which are cool. But as a team defender, I don't think he really had a huge impact. He was more prone to those lapses off ball where I don't think it was as much of a point of pride. 
He would take gambles that could go either way off ball. And given that he wasn't a bigger wing, he didn't have a ton of value as a helper. And he didn't have a ton of value in terms of high-end switchability going on to some of those bigger, more powerful players. He was better switching on small guys or just guarding players of his similar size. From 2004 to 2013, the Lakers' defensive rating was worse with him on the floor six times. It was better with him on the floor four times. So, no, I do not take that sort of defensive on-off data because there's, you know, a whole scope of the team and the lineups you're playing with and all that, and only one perimeter defender can do so much to impact a team defense no matter what as, like, gospel but that doesn't happen with truly great defenders, that there's basically a negligible impact on how your team performs with you out there or without you on the court defensively for a decade. Like if you look at Draymond's impact, right? The Warriors defenses are five plus points per 100 possessions better with him out there every year, pretty much. So bottom line, Kobe's a good defender. He's not a game-changing one, and he's not driving team success on that end of the floor. So when you're looking at some of those Lakers' top five defenses, you can only give Kobe so much credit in those conversations. So I do think it's important that we address that because I feel like there's such a wide range of opinions on Kobe's defense, and a lot of it is driven by accolades, which... I just don't value that much. Like, I'm sorry, somebody else's opinion, and especially we know how wrong voters can get this stuff and how little some of them pay attention. It's just not more important to me than what I'm able to actually see and uh, deduce. So you have that, and then you do have his efficiency. Career, he's under plus 2% true shooting versus league average. Playoffs, 25.6 points per game on plus 1.4% true shooting versus average. So it's not that Kobe is an inefficient player. It's not that he's not a great offensive hub. This is compared to the other all-time greats. And part of this is just a matter of shot diet. Kobe took a ton of tough shots. He took a ton of long twos, shot 40% in his career from 16 to 23 feet. That's 27% of his shots. And there are just other guys who have been able to generate more valuable shots more consistently than Kobe, purely as a matter of skill set. Like Steph has been able to dominate as a highly efficient pull-up jump shooter from deep. If he makes 40% of his threes, that's 60% true shooting. That's great offense. And Shaq, still able to dominate the rim, right? Magic still able to score very efficiently and create super high-value looks directly for his teammates consistently. MJ had a better blend of elite rim pressure and more efficient mid-range shot making than what Kobe had. And if anybody still is like, well, why does efficiency matter? Because I know there was a time where people are like, oh, everybody's talking about efficiency. What does that matter? This guy got buckets. This guy scored X amount of points. I mean, efficiency is ultimately the name of the game, right? You have a finite number of possessions. You need to make the most out of those possessions. And that's why it matters that you create high shot quality, not just that you can get a super tough bucket. That may be valuable in a very specific scenario, but broadly, if you can just create great looks at the rim, or if you can consistently enhance your teammates out of pick and roll and get them a bunch of lobs, like those things are extremely valuable. And this is interesting because I know that Jason Tim, who I'm sure a lot of you guys, if you are a fan of our show, probably watch him as well. And he is the man, but he just made a video talking about why he thinks Kobe is historically underrated. And part of that being that 
those shots that Kobe took are the ones that are available in a playoff scenario. And I would just say that that's not necessarily true. Again, Steph still creates great, highly efficient offense for himself in the playoffs. So did Shaq. So did all the guys that I mentioned, Magic and MJ. So nobody has ever made scoring look more impressive than Kobe. But some dudes have skill sets that just make it easier. I also think something that Jason mentioned was that touching on efficiency is as though we're getting into some theoretical realm and not looking at what actually matters, which is that Kobe won five championships. And I just think we can't look at things this way. It is not about five rings in a vacuum. Kobe is so clearly and undeniably the second best player on three of those championship teams, especially 2000, right? When he averages under 16 points per game in the playoffs. And Shaq is the best player in the life. Uh, alive at that point. So that context matters. People underrate, I think, the collective strength of a core of Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum and Lamar Odom and Derek Fisher, Trevor Reeves on the 9 team around Kobe. Like, that was going to be a top five defense. That's a really high level of offensive skill and versatility and size and athleticism. So, of course, the core that you have around you matters. A guy like Akeem Olajuwon was never privileged to play with the sort of talent that Kobe did for a vast majority of his prime. And when we're looking at team results, of course, that matters. You mentioned Kobe's career on off plus 4.6 does not hold up against a lot of these guys. So I just think, of course, he drove winning. Of course, he was vitally important to the Shaq uh, championship teams. And he was far and away the guy in 2009 and 2010, but he also played in a lot of great situations. And I don't think that his peak can quite match Akeem's as a two-way force, where he is the best scorer in the field and is the best defensive player alive. Or Steph's as like maybe the greatest offensive engine because of his level of scoring efficiency and off-ball value and the fact that he's a significantly better playmaker and he's driven better all-time offenses than what Kobe did. So that's what it comes down to. The longevity, the totality of his efforts towards championships, the scoring variety, I value it all so much. But I think there are guys with higher peaks who ultimately were better engines towards driving winning and Kobe does of course get elevated because of three rings on which he was not the guy so I want to get a gauge for where you think Kobe uh, lines up with other great offensive engines maybe even guys that aren't on this list like guys like Steve Nash guys like Chris Paul guys like James Harden like is that the tier of offensive engine that you're talking about with Kobe Bryant, or do you think he's higher? I think that all of those guys fall into different categories for me. So I would say Kobe is clearly a better offensive engine than a guy like James Harden, because I think Harden had an inherently rigid and ball dominant style that doesn't scale as well to the playoffs. I think that his variety as a shot maker, the lack thereof hurt him. I think his reliance on getting to the line hurt him. So I would not have Harden in a tier with the other two guys you mentioned. I think Steve Nash belongs in the same conversation as an offensive engine because of the shot quality he creates for everybody around him. Kobe's advantage though is his ability to ultimately go out there and do it himself as a scorer and directly impose himself on the game like that. So I would say that Kobe is above definitely Harden by far. I would have him above CP3 as well. 
Nash is tough, but I mean, there's no comparison in terms of the totality of their resumes, given how much longer Kobe did it for, given his two-way advantage, given the championship runs. Would you have, so he's, him and KD, you would put in a similar tier? Is that the kind of range? Well, I think Kobe is clearly better than KD. I mean, ultimately, Kobe climbed the mountain as the guy undeniably twice. He has even better longevity. I think that he's actually more proven as a solo offensive engine with what he did in those 05 to 07 years. You know, KD's consistently played with really good talent in his career. He hasn't necessarily had to carry a team like that. Kobe could not in any world be lower than 12 for me on this list, bottom line. But I do think the peak... Uh, edges and the singular dominance on one side of the ball that Steph can reach that Akeem can reach it's like those two there's tons of people who would argue Steph is the greatest offensive player Akeem is the greatest defensive player ever those are the guys who are in my 10 and 11 range the top 12 players of basket uh, top 12 basketball players ever are all just phenomenally great and I slightly prefer other skill sets to Kobe's that's what it comes down to so you have Jerry West at 11 is there anything else that you want to say about him, or should I give my number 11? I'm not trying to get flambayed again, so go ahead. All right, well, I guess this is going to be Carson talking for 30 straight minutes because I just talked about Kobe for so long. But I had a lot to say, man, because it's important because I don't want it to come across as though I'm disrespecting Kobe. I'm not. I love Kobe's game. I appreciate it so much. These are small margins between the best of the absolute best. I do have Akeem one spot higher than him, though. And this was the toughest decision for me probably on this list. Obviously, this starts with the fact that Akeem is a top two defender of all time, point blank. I prefer Bill Russell. I think that within the scope of his era, his dominance was on another level, churning out 12 number one defenses in 13 years. Taking away the rim singularly was so important then. But Akeem is probably like alone in a tier as number two. He has the best hands of any big ever, which made him a massive disruptor. If it was in passing lanes, if it was disrupting entry passes, defending post-ups, anytime the ball was exposed, he was liable to make a play. And at 255, he could battle physically in the post with the most powerful bigs out there, Shaq, Carl Malone, in a way that some of the all-time great defensive bigs outside of him couldn't, right? Like KG was not nearly the post-defender that Akeem was. He had the agility to cover ground and recover quickly as a helper. And he was just a monstrous rim protector, the best of the modern era. 3.1 blocks per game over a 20-year career, basically, is unconscious. He could just erase space so quickly with his length and athleticism. 7-6 wingspan, unbelievable timing. And he anchored eight top five defenses without impressive defensive personnel alongside him. It was just Akeem driving them to that level, which is like so special. After the years with Ralph Sampson, where they had that like dual rim protector setup. Then he also has one of the most impressive scoring arsenals ever. Like what is he famous for? As much as his shot blocking, it is the dream shake. It is his overall skilled post scoring game, which I think is Probably the most impressive ever in terms of skill. I would give him the edge over Kevin McHale, who maybe has a bit more variety in terms of craftiness and counters. They're both great. But because of the fluid athleticism of Akeem, right? Because of his incredible body control on spins, because of his comparative quickness, there's just a little bit more that he can do there. Had a quick first step facing up, but then, yeah, had all the counters, right? Step-throughs, 
unbelievable, beautiful turnarounds, really strong shooter from that mid-range area. And his scoring got even better in the playoffs. In his playoff career, he averaged 25.9 points per game on plus 3.7% true shooting versus league average. 1994 leads the playoffs in scoring as the best defender in the league, very efficiently, 4% true shooting better than league average. His second best player on that team was Otis Thorpe. And they beat three easily more talented teams in the 56-win Suns with Barkley and KJ, the 53-win Jazz with Malone and Stockton, and the 57-win Knicks, who were obviously just loaded and one of the great defensive teams ever. Then, 95, he takes it up another level as a scorer. 33 points per game, leads the playoffs, still quite efficiently, and he has Clyde, but overcomes the toughest path ever. The 60-win Jazz, the 59-win Suns, the 62-win Spurs, and the 57-win Magic. And although Clyde is very good, this is not Apex Clyde anymore. Like, Akeem is... uh, still doing one of the most impressive carry jobs, especially considering his defensive load in NBA history and considering the level of competition they face. Like, they should have lost all four of those series on paper, and Akeem is the only reason that they didn't. I also think we focus so much on those two title runs, deservedly so. I had them both in my top 10 playoff runs ever. I think that it reflects one of the highest peaks that we've ever seen. But he's also a historically great floor raiser. Between Ralph Sampson and Clyde Drexler, there is a nine-year stretch where the only all-star teammate Akeem plays with is Otis Thorpe in 1992. Again, crazy generous all-star selection. 86, his second year when he's playing with Sampson, gets him to the finals and dominated Kareem beat the Lakers in five and is scoring and defending already at one of the highest levels that we have ever seen. Before Clyde showed up to Houston, Akeem led the Rockets to a 49-win pace. That's for over a decade. They won 61% of their games with him, 40% of their games without him. And if you just look at the times that he was in the playoffs, like, He didn't have supporting cast to make a lot of deep runs, but 86, that first final strip, he's putting up 27 and 12 with three and a half blocks per game on 53% from the field. The next year, it's 29 a game, over four blocks, almost 62% shooting. They make the second round in 93, he's 26, 14 and five with five blocks a game, 52% shooting. And then of course he has the two title runs. It's like he was consistently dominant in the playoffs and he was consistently leading these teams way past where their talent level would dictate they should have been in the regular season. But he is way closer to KG in terms of the talent he got to play alongside for a majority of his career than he is anybody else here. Of course, he ends up with old Barkley and Clyde, but none of them were at their peak, and I don't think you can hold that against him. So the only reason that he isn't even higher, and this is really tough, is that He was a great defensive foundation, and he was a great scorer, but still most of the team offenses that he dragged along, super impressive that he dragged them at all, were just average. I mean, as a guy who was going to score on good, but not all-time efficiency, because he didn't pressure the rim as easily and relentlessly as some of the other all-time great bigs, because he was relying on his post skill there, and because he's not a great playmaker, he couldn't just singularly elevate you to being really good on that end of the floor. He still won two titles regardless, but 
I would give Steph like the slight advantage for how automatically he has made these great offenses, which has led to those six final strips and four rings, as I mentioned. And versus Kobe, I just believe he was a more individual dominant force because of that two-way value. Because what he did in 94-95, I believe very few players in NBA history have been capable of. He does also have great longevity, but this is ultimately a matter of the peak, the floor raising, the title runs, the incredible scoring and defensive value that Akeem had that I don't know, I think is divisive because there's the issue of, well, he only has the two rings, but they're two of the most impressive rings that we've ever seen. I think people struggle with where to place him because of that. I think Hakeem is very hard to rank and I'm going to be honest. It kind of shocks me that you have him uh, above Steph a little bit because of that two way value. I mean, I think Hakeem is the second greatest defender of all time uh, just behind Bill Russell. Uh, I have Hakeem uh, a little higher. I'll save some of my spiel for uh, next episode when we get into the actual top 10. But like you said, dude, across 13 seasons, he is anchoring 10 top 10 defenses, eight top five defenses. They're two of the hardest rings ever. I mean, you're looking at Vernon Maxwell averaging 14 points a game. He's their second leading scorer. And I do think he's criminally underrated as an offensive player. Uh, you talked about all the skills and traits that he has on the low block. I mean, the elevation that he could get on that turnaround jump shot, I mean, it's unblockable. He's got the greatest footwork ever on the low block. He's the greatest defensive playmaker ever. 4.8 stocks per game. That's .4 more than second place in David Robinson. He's got the most seasons with three or more blocks per game in NBA history. He did it six times. He led the league there three times. I mean... I just think Akeem is one of the great defensive players ever. I think he had two yeah. of the most impressive title runs ever. And I value his complete two-way impact a little more than a guy like Steph. I understand it. Steph's one of the greatest offensive players ever. But I just think Akeem's total impact is massive. It's massive. And that's why I have him in the top 10. I'll be interested to see exactly where you have him. I do think... You talk about his offensive game being underrated. I mean, I think it is phenomenal, but there is an important distinction to be made between like Shaq as an offensive engine because Shaq was going to instantly demand the entirety of a defense's attention in the paint the second that he got the ball or even trying to deny him from getting the ball, right? What that does, not only in terms of his individual efficiency, getting shots so close to the rim, but also for the entire team around him, how many more quality open looks they're able to get. There's like a big gap there versus Akeem being this incredibly skilled scorer, but having to do so much of it with some more of that tough shot making out of the post, it's closer to like that sort of KG model than it is to like a, a Shaq level of dominance. Although I think clearly Akeem is a better, more skilled scorer than KG across the board. And he was able to get across the, the hump as a clear number one option because of that. You can certainly argue Akeem higher. I think I'm really high on Steph, but just the eight, well, I guess it's closer to, yeah, nine year peak that we've seen from Steph now, but he wasn't healthy in 2020. I really, really value that level of offensive dominance propelling one of the great runs of team success that we have ever seen in the history of this sport. Climbing the mountain that many times, getting to the finals that many times. But we'll have that conversation even more next episode when I reveal wherever I do have Steph. Where may that be? Who knows? 10 through 6 will come out tomorrow. And then, of course, we will do 5 through 1. So, as always... 
Hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. If you have, please feel free to subscribe to the Volume YouTube page. You can stay tuned in for the rest of the series and all of our shows here. You can also listen to the podcast across audio platforms, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us across social media. Instagram is at NerdSesh. TikTok, more importantly, is the same, where we're consistently posting trivia content, clips from the show. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. You can buy our merch at thevolume.com. You see the flags that we have behind us. We've got hoodies. We've got hats. We've got shirts. I'm wearing the hoodie as well. So that is at thevolume.com or in our link tree across our social media bios. And you can join our Discord also in our link tree. So feel free to check us out in all those places. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.